I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Quick reminder that I recently started a Patreon so that I can hire somebody to help me catch up on transcripts. If you've been enjoying the show and you have a couple bucks to spare, then I'd be so grateful if you'd sign up as a patron at patreon.com slash noendinsight. I don't have any fun perks set up yet, but as soon as I figure those out, I'll make sure that they go to all supporters. Today, I'm talking to Ashanti Daniel about Emmy and, this is a long list, hereditary angioedema and asthma and, this is a hard one, um, perennioplastic syndrome, that was just a word I'd never pronounced before, and autoimmune autonomic neuropathy and myasthenia gravis and mast cell activation syndrome. Comorbidities are complicated, as I'm sure you all know. Ashanti also worked as a nurse before getting sick, and so she is able to tell her entire story with that additional medical lens, which is really interesting and informative. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. And so to start, I just like to ask people, how was your health as a kid? So I was a healthy child. I did develop asthma at age 10, but other than that, I was a healthy child. Okay. Yeah. And that's like yeah. something mm-hmm. that a lot of kids have. A lot of kids yeah. <laughs> live with asthma or manage asthma. Right. Um, okay. So not much else kind of in the background. So then was there a specific moment for you when things started to change or did it happen gradually? No, for me, it was like getting hit by a train. Um, I got sick and never got well. It was in August, 2016 while I was a registered nurse working in a neonatal intensive care unit. I became ill and I initially presented with respiratory symptoms Hmm. and due to my history of asthma, everyone just assumed, oh, hey, this is a severe asthma um, attack. I would, if I was talking to medical people, I would say exacerbation, but (laughs) I was trying to think like people who are not in the medical field will be listening. I want them to understand what I'm saying. So they, they, you know, were saying, well, this is just a severe asthma attack and they treated me accordingly or, you know, based on what the protocol would be for that. The interesting part is there were a couple of symptoms that I had at that time that were not consistent with just an asthma attack. And at that point, I was working out five days a week. I was extremely fit. I mean, to the point that I looked like a trainer. People would ask me if I was a trainer. I ate healthy. I always ate healthy. I've never been drunk in my life. So like I was living a really healthy lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So it didn't make sense. And my asthma was very well controlled. I was only using my inhaler before workouts, but other than that, I didn't need it. I was fine. So it didn't make sense that I could become so sick out of the blue with my asthma. Right. However, and you know, and again, like I said, I had some additional symptoms. I can't remember to be very honest because that's the way chronic illness works. I can't remember all of the additional symptoms that I had. Or the order. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I do know that I had a hoarse voice. I do know that I had fatigue. And I'm not sure at what point the muscle weakness began, but it was earlier on. But those are all symptoms that never came with an asthma attack in my whole, you know, history of asthma. 
another part that I may have already said during this talk, but I had not been hospitalized for asthma in, in 20 years. Okay. So that's so, another thing. So, so like since um, the, the first time kind of when it first presented? No, I, oh. it had been since I, the, the last time I was hospitalized, I think was five years into having okay. asthma. But definitely. Like so well into your history yeah. at that point oh yeah that's a long time so literally i hadn't been hospitalized in 20 years that's yeah. like i mean like i got sick in august it would have been december would have been 20 years of no asthmatic related hospitalization so literally four months away so i just say 20 years because that's yeah that's fair so um so anyway so i ended up admitted overnight they were treating me like i said like a severe asthma attack I was discharged the next day, went home for a few days, was not getting better despite multiple medications. I mean, steroids, they had me on breathing treatments at home around the clock because I do have what's called a nebulizer machine at home, which is similar to what they use like at the hospital or urgent care or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I have my own, so I have my own meds to go in there. I was doing those around the clock. I was on steroids. I was even on antibiotics because some pulmonologists feel that even though there was no evidence of pneumonia on my x-ray, when the asthma is really flaring, sometimes um, an antibiotic can help decrease the inflammation in the airway. Okay. So that was the theory. So I was on all of these things. I wasn't getting better. I returned back to the hospital about maybe three days after discharge. Don't, that's not an exact quote, but somewhere a few okay. days later, three, not long. four days later. Yeah, not long. And for and you, at that point, did it feel the same as, like, did it feel like an asthma attack to you since you had felt those before and also had been working in the medical field? I would say <clears throat> yes and no. Initially, very, very early, I'm like, oh, my lungs. But then, like I said, the addition of the hoarse voice, the fatigue, and then I think the weakness must have came like a little bit later. But by the time I was admitted this second time, I knew right then I'm like, no, this is not asthma. This is something worse. And even my best friend, who is a nurse like I am, she's an adult ICU nurse. She agreed. Like we call each other A team because both of our names start with the letter A. Perfect. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? <laughs> Match made in heaven. No, so. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> She was like, A team, I don't think this is your asthma. I'm like, it's not. I know it isn't. I just was very um, in touch with my body at that time. So I'm like, no, this is something worse. This is something bigger than that. So we just didn't know at the time. And then I do have um, a family history of like my dad died of a rare autoimmune condition. Mm. Um, He had atypical presentation. It was very aggressive. And he had lung involvement only. Okay. So then the next thing, you know, I'm like, okay, now I need to start trying to <laughs> advocate for myself. So yeah. I talked to my pulmonologist and I'm like, you know, remind him of my dad's history. So they did go ahead and do a CT scan of my chest while I was admitted. Cause the second time I was admitted for like five or six days. So I had already been just for overnight, Okay. went home for the few days and then admitted again for like five or six days. So during that time they did do a CT scan of my chest to make sure that there wasn't any evidence that I was sick with the same um, illness that killed my dad, um, which I don't know if people care to know what that is. But. <laughs> sure, yeah, if you want to share it. 
<laughs> it's called dermatomyositis. Dermatomyositis. So, yes. Okay. And you said it was an auto, it's an autoimmune condition? Yes, it is autoimmune. Um, but like I said, in my dad, it had atypical presentation and which means for non-medical people, unusual presentation and it present the way that doctors would normally see it. Right. Um, it was very aggressive, lung involvement only from the time of his diagnosis to his death was less than two weeks and he was wow. actually in, in the hospital being treated. So, yeah. um, so anyway, so there was that, of course, in the back of my mind. Yeah, and, of course. Um, we got the CT. It was fine. So that was the relief. However, there still was this question, like, what's happening? Like, why am I not getting better? Right. All the asthmatic meds and all this that they're giving me, and I'm still having a difficult time. Plus, again, my voice is still hoarse. I'm still, you know, fatigued, still weak, et cetera. So, um. I was discharged after that, and my pulmonologist was still pretty insistent that this was just a really bad asthma attack that knocked me down and that I just needed a while to recover from it. And, I, you know, I thought to myself, like, that would make sense if I was, like, a senior citizen yeah. or if I was, like, I had some other, you know, comorbidities, which means like other, like diabetes, high blood pressure, right. you know, heart failure or some like other some, you know, illnesses. Yeah, yeah, some other factor. That would, right. That would make me, you know, be so um, sick from just an asthma attack. But again, still, it didn't make sense with how healthy I was at the time. I was in the best shape of my adult life. Right. And I was never really out of shape per se because... Now I have like an athletic body type, but I mean, I was in shape. Yeah. Like, yeah. And you, you know? knew your body. <laughs> yeah. I knew my body. So I'm like, no, no, no. So I, I did go, not really go along, but I didn't, um, push for, to see other specialists for a few months. So mm -hmm. this was an, all that originally started in August, 2016. And then by, I think, Early November, I finally was like to my pulmonologist, Let, refer me at least to an allergist. Because I'm thinking to myself, like, maybe there's something that I'm suddenly allergic to because, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. You can develop sudden allergies that you've yeah. never had your whole life. I mean, that's just how it is. So I'm like, at least let me start there. Let me try to see an allergist, see if there are some foods that I'm suddenly allergic to or some additional environmental allergies because I've had allergies since I was a child, but like maybe there's something else and I keep exposing myself to it, which is making me, you know, not get well. My yeah. lungs are like, no, thank you. And whatever. So yeah. Like maybe that's that. the extra thing. Right. <laughs> um, and so during those couple months after, so after your like multi-day hospital admission, mm -hmm. did you just, did you go back to work? Like where you no, I never went okay. back to work. Yeah, that, no, that sounds I, like that would have been really hard. Yeah, no, my last night shift as a nurse was August 10th, 2016. Okay. Like, that was it. I never was able to return, never even close to yeah. being able to return. Yeah. Which is very devastating for me because nursing yeah. is not just a career for me. It's who I am at my core. Mm -hmm. It's my identity, you know, my life's purpose. So anyway, but yeah, I never returned. So all those months I was just at home, I was seeing my pulmonologist frequently and he just had the same yeah. explanation and, you know, like it's asthma, keep trying the meds, wait it out kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And just like, you just need time. Like it just really knocked you down. You just need time. Yeah. And he even at one point put me on a really strong antibiotic 
called doxycycline, mm-hmm. which I have heard people have been put on that, like for Lyme. Yeah. I might be wrong, but anyway, yeah, I've heard, yeah. It's, it's like the before, first so. line of treatment for Lyme, yeah. usually. Yeah. Well, so I got that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still sick. So yeah. It's not Lyme. Yeah. But, um, so I did get that, and that was, oh, I, I hope to never, ever have to take that medication again. Yeah. <laughs> My GI, which is my digestive tract, was yep. not happy with that medication at all. So yeah. I was on that for a while. Um, and still, I wasn't better. So right. finally, I did see the allergist. The allergist was great. He ran like a ton of tests. And there were um, some things that came back abnormal, um, but no food allergies, which I had never had food allergies anyway, but so there weren't any sudden food allergies. My environmental allergies were pretty much the same. So that wasn't the explanation. Um, however, they were the, some of the labs that came back abnormal is a test for a rare um, autoimmune illness called hereditary angioedema. Okay. So he wanted to repeat the test because, you know, of course, labs can make errors. And because it is a rare illness, he's like, well, let me just double check and make sure this is actually (laughs) the right result. So he did. So he did. And in the interim, while we were waiting for the repeat test to come back, I ended up admitted in the hospital again. This time I had what I can best describe as upper digestive tract swelling. Okay. But it's but it's internal. It's not something that you could see on the outside. It's just happening inside. Mm-hmm. So what it caused was me to be unable to swallow solids. Okay. So I could drink liquids fine, but anytime I ate sw- solids, it felt like um, the food was stuck. No matter how much I chewed it, it felt like it was stuck. Mm-hmm. And it also caused me a tremendous amount of pain while yeah. it was going down. I bet. So... I stopped eating. Yeah. And I was just I was just drinking. So I drank a ton of water. I drank a ton of coconut water, like for the electrolytes. Mm-hmm. I was drinking um like vegetable broth. Like those were pretty much it actually. And I <laughs> managed myself at home like that for a week, which yeah. I don't necessarily recommend. <laughs> right. That's one of that's one of those do not do this at home. <laughs> But it's hard in, in the middle of it, right? When you don't have energy yeah, no, no. and you just want to be better and you're like, maybe yes. I'll wait one more day. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. And plus, I was like, you know, tired of being sick. I don't want to go to the hospital because I know at this point I'm going to have to stay. And they're going to say I'm dehydrated. I know. Yeah. I'm going to stay. I don't want to go and stay. Yeah. I want to be at home. Yeah. So I just tried to hope and pray for a miracle like oh it's just gonna you know be okay and i'll be good no (laughs) that didn't happen didn't happen i ended up admitted (laughs) um and that time i was admitted for about i think nine days i know it was over a week for sure and i was in the hospital over thanksgiving but during that admission they were running multiple tests and whatever and then uh, that repeat lab came back the same, that it was still that, you know, hereditary angioedema. Okay. So they did treat me for that with um, fresh frozen plasma. Okay. I can't, I can't remember how many doses I got that time. I think just one or two. But anyway, about 24 hours or so later, I did start having some improvement. However, I will say that 
with the hereditary angioedema, that still did not explain the rest of my symptoms. Like, like it could explain this swelling type okay, thing yeah. that was happening. Because what does that cause? Or what do, they, what do we know about it that? It causes swelling. So Specifically. So hereditary angioedema causes swelling. So um, it, swelling can happen any part of your body when mm-hmm. you have hereditary angioedema. There are people who experience laryngeal swelling, which, of course, can be fatal. So that's like a, an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who experience upper digestive tract swelling, lower digestive tract swelling. And because it causes so much pain, oftentimes patients are taken to surgery to have like exploratory abdominal surgery. Just they because they don't know why. Because doctors don't know about hereditary angioedema because it's so rare. It's, you know. Yeah. If you're not an allergist, pretty much you've probably never heard of it, never seen a patient with it or any of that. So, yeah, it's like not on the um, radar. No, it's not on the radar. And there are some people who have like swelling on their face, their lips, hands. Like it literally can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, though, the swelling was internal, which cannot be seen, you know, on the outside of right. your body. So that happened, discharge home. Okay, so that's a potential diagnosis, but that doesn't explain everything else that's going on yeah and everything so, that had already been going on right exactly it's like, <laughs> you kind of had that issue at the exact right time for it to be caught but it was not the only thing right exactly so then um so then I started seeing additional specialists finally at that point I got uh, I think maybe my primary doctor on board. So at this time I had HMO health insurance, so you have to have referrals. So it wasn't like I could just make appointments. Right. But my primary care doctor was very supportive and has been very supportive throughout. So he started giving me referrals because he knew he's like, at this point he had been my doctor for 14 years. He had seen me through a bunch of, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, life experiences. He was my doctor when my dad passed away. I mean, he had been my doctor through a lot of things that had happened. So, um, both good and bad. So he knew that I was really sick. He never questioned whether I was ill or anything, which was, um, great. And I'm thankful for that. So he did start putting the referrals in cause he's like, I want to help you find out what's going on. And so I saw multiple doctors. That's awesome. <laughs> cause that yeah. part can be really hard. <laughs> Right, especially when you have an HMO. If you have a doctor who doesn't believe you or who isn't supportive, then you can't get the referrals, and then you can never get yeah. answers. You're so, just trapped. Yeah, you're literally trapped because you're at their mercy. If you know, if you have PPO, it's a different story. You can make your own appointments, but um, HMO is not the same story. So um, I saw a neurologist, I saw a rheumatologist, I saw an infectious disease doctor who was the only doctor in my experience since becoming ill that did not believe me or that said that my symptoms could be psychosomatic or whatever, you know, caused by, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, However they phrase that idea. Right, yeah. So, and that was anyway, a rheumatologist, you said? No, that no. was an infectious Sorry. disease Sorry, okay, yeah. yeah. Infectious disease, and, okay. And the irony is that he didn't even physically examine me. He literally spent five minutes with me and then ordered, like, some blood work. So this is probably a little off topic, but I just want to say. No, go for it. <laughs> once I requested my records and I saw that he put in there that the explanation for my physical symptoms could be psychosomatic, I sent him an email, a very 
firm email. <laughs> yeah, strongly worded. <laughs> yeah, very strongly worded, but professional email and told him about himself and how, you know, how could he draw that conclusion when he literally did not even examine me, spent five minutes with me just talking to me. He's never seen me before. He has no, you know, has no history with me. And he agreed. He actually apologized for what he wrote in his console note and he edited it out. That so, is great. Yeah. So I do appreciate him for that. However, right. <laughs> I was very, I was very disgusted. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like that can have such long, that can cause such long-term damage when something like that is in your notes, because it's going to be the first impression that any new right. doctor has right. from now on. And that's exactly, even if the doctor thinks that, which I don't think that they should, but if they do, you're like, okay, well, you're entitled to your opinion, but as soon as you write it in my chart, like, that's my business. That's not okay. Right. And then on top of that, it's like, okay, so I just made up this blood work. Like, <laughs> I actually had abnormal labs. Like, I'm sorry. That's not something that you can take. I can't tell my brain, oh, make my blood be abnormal. Yeah. Like, this is ridiculous. You know, so it's not, you know, I know for some patients with chronic illness, their labs look normal, etc. So that is even more challenging. But for me, mine didn't. So right. it's like, come on, are you kidding me? Yeah. So okay, good. I guess I'm some superhuman. Yeah. That I can tell, my brain can tell my blood. Yeah. To, like to whatever it is. Have abnormal results. Yeah. yeah. So crazy. So anyway, so I continued looking for answers though. Yeah. New doctors. Um, right. New doctors. I saw gastroenterologists, which is you know digestive system specialist for people yeah. who don't know. Um, so I had actually seen one in the hospital when I was in the hospital in November and okay. then I continued to see him outpatient. And then I didn't get any better. So I, but I was determined like, oh, I have, like, I need to go back to work. Like I need my life back. Yeah. So at this point, about five months into the illness, I decided to do yoga. Okay. Right? Like, yeah. Basic yoga, though, beginner yoga. I mean, I had been extremely strong doing high-intensity interval training. I wasn't doing yoga when I was working out before. I was doing, like, you know, very high-intensity. So yeah. I'm like, oh, I should be able to do yoga because I was really weak at this point. But I'm like, yeah, maybe if I do stuff, I'll get my strength back. I'm like, yoga is great for your mind, body, spirit. Like, yeah. this, is the, per this yeah. is the perfect thing to do, right? Maybe yoga is the answer. Horrible idea. Oh. So, which I didn't know at the time, sure. I, you know, I realized until later on, but so I would go to yoga and after every yoga class, I was bedridden for about three days. And were they, um, um like there's so many kinds of yoga, but like the oh, more this is beginning yoga, beginner but... yoga. <laughs> yeah. But like not, um, what are the really slow ones? Like restorative, which is where you kind of mostly just lie there. It wasn't a just lying uh... there yoga. It wasn't, a I did do a couple of their just lying there ones, but I didn't always do like some yeah. of them I was actually doing stuff, but it's like yeah. their beginner one. Cause they have like, it's, yeah. it was a yoga studio. So right. they had a bunch of classes, yeah. a lot of beginner ones, but I took the beginner ones. Cause I'm like, you know, I'm really weak. So let me just yeah. do that. But I was even so weak that when I would sit down like buttocks on the floor to stretch, my legs would tremble. Mm -hmm. That's how weak I was. But I'm like, oh, as long as I keep coming. Yeah. <laughs> excuse me, my, my legs will get, I'll get stronger. No right. big deal. No. And like, that's what had always happened before when you would exercise, right? That well, you get, yeah, stronger. get stronger. Yeah. Yeah. But I was never this week. Yeah. Like, you know, so but I'm like, yeah, just do stuff. 
yoga is great. It's, you know, low impact. I'll be fine. No. Totally. Not at all. Literally every class I was after bedridden for three days and I couldn't understand why it made no sense to me. I I knew nothing about post-exertional malaise, which I'll explain and come back to later. Yeah. Nothing about that stuff. So I kept going back because that's my personality. I have a very like, I'm the person that perseveres. I'm the person that's like, you just keep going. Like, you can do it no matter what. Yeah. Terrible. So every time that kept happening, and then finally the last yoga class I took, I almost passed out in the class. And that, to me, was like, okay, your body is saying, no, thank you. Please don't do this anymore. Time for a break. Right. So at that point, I've heard my body loud and clear. I didn't know why. But it was very bizarre to me because I'm like, what in the world is happening? Like, you right. know, I'm just still like very confused because at this point there is no diagnosis that matches with everything that's happening. Yeah. Hereditary angioedema can't explain why I can't do basic yoga yeah. without being bedridden. For, and I mean bedridden. When I say bedridden, I mean like having to lay down to eat my food. Right. Yeah. Like and something mom. That- Yeah, you would never expect, right? No, no, I had never had that in my life. Like literally being unable to sit up to eat my food. Mm -hmm. And of course, definitely not making the food. You know, my mom would make it for me or whatever. So anyway, um, so I stopped yoga. And then, um, then I ended up admitted again in April. And this time I presented with lower digestive tract swelling. So okay. I looked at, so I looked about six months pregnant. So that Ooh. actually was external. Like it was and visible. I'm, yeah. It was visible. Yeah. And I'm thin, I'm petite and I have a flat stomach. So for me to look six months pregnant is, is very obvious. It's so I knew. And plus, yeah. And I was having the pain again, the same thing. Couldn't eat solid. It was the same thing, but it was interesting. It was on the lower half instead of on the top half. So if you think about like from just under your chest down was where I was having the pain, even mm-hmm. down into my pelvic area as well and, um, this time. And did it like track to when you were eating? Since the first time, I would guess that felt pretty obvious of like you try to swallow yeah. and you can't. The yeah, second time exactly. you'd be like, oh, I can swallow. But then however much time passes and then it hurts no, kind like, of or not even got, once it got down to um let's see how can i explain this so <laughs> that people without medicals okay so your transverse colon which is you know your part of your intestines it yeah. runs right across like under your chest or under your breast like right across okay. there that top part um so every time that i ate something i would have the pain and that area would swell up like you would actually see the the colon sit out because like I said I'm thin so it would sit out and then the you know my (laughs) stomach was growing and growing and growing so stop eating I ended up same scenario admitted again but this time I didn't really respond to the I was also having bloody stool Mm. I was having some other like you know um yeah symptoms so um and I had already had a colonoscopy uh, 
like earlier a couple a couple months prior yeah so okay. it definitely you know we knew that there wasn't any colon cancer in there but so mm-hmm. my allergist is like oh hereditary angioedema attack again okay <laughs> strikes so again admitted, right so and actually i had gone to the er days before i was admitted with the pain and they were thinking like you know because i'm a woman so they're like oh let's you know do a pelvic exam let's check and it was very interesting because when she examined my ovaries and like my uterus and stuff, nothing. I had no pain, everything was fine. However, when she turned her fingers down toward my rectum, I hope that's not too graphic for no. anyone that's listening to no this. No worries. I just have to, it's <laughs> all on the table. Real life. <laughs> it's all on the life. table. When she turned her fingers down to my rectum and pressed there, I almost flew off the table in pain. Yeah. So I'm like, it's not, I knew that it wasn't my, you know, reproductive yeah. system at not all. gynecological. I know. I knew that it was my, my digestive system. And plus, I mean, I'm, I don't normally look six months pregnant, lady. Like I'm yeah. telling you. Like. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I was discharged home. They did do, I think they did a pelvic ultrasound and there was like an ovarian cyst, but it was fine. I mean, yeah, no. Those are relatively common too. Yeah. For and, people and with I've ovaries. Had, like... And I've had them rupture before and all that. This yeah. wasn't that kind of pain. This was different. I knew yeah. that this was not. So I went home and then I, I, it dawned on me. I'm like, at that time, I actually didn't think, or actually I wasn't sure that it was a hereditary edema, an angioedema attack. I was not sure. So, but then once I went home, I'm like, oh, it's probably the hereditary angioedema again, right? So I call my allergist the next day and I'm like, do you have any samples of, there's a rescue med for hereditary angioedema called Fearazir. So it's sort of like Epi, but for hereditary angioedema because Epi typically does not work on patients with hereditary angioedema, which is interesting because it's a different mechanism that causes swelling. So, gotcha. Yeah. Um, So it has to intervene somewhere else. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So (laughs) I am not a medical professional. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. If you understand it, that means everyone else who is not a medical professional does too. Yeah. And so, because sometimes I have to remember, like, make sure everyone else can understand, not just your yeah. other healthcare professionals. And it's like funny within chronic illness patients because so many people have had so many medical experiences that it's like most people have a more sophisticated language than like maybe the general population, but certainly not not at the level probably of someone who has been through some kind of a program. Right. Um, Yeah. Definitely not at the level of my four-year degree. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like... Or it will be really specific. So it's like whoever it is, they'll know all of the medical terminology relating to their their you know, illness. Yeah, right. but it doesn't obviously apply to everything. Right. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, so so just before you got discharged, you said you weren't sure, and and they had tried some stuff, but basically they just weren't able to get it under no. control. This was actually in the ER. So I had gone to the ER a couple of days before I got right. admitted. Okay. That's when I started having like the pain, the difficulty. And that's you know, when all you weren't sure. Right. That's when I wasn't sure. It didn't dawn on me until I was back home the next gotcha. day. And I'm like, wait a minute. So I called my allergist like, do you have fears here? And he's like, no, I don't have any samples in the office. And at this time, I didn't have my own prescription for it. So I'm like, oh, so he's like, oh, come in. So I go in. He gives me all this not all this, but I think like two or three pages of literature along with orders to take back to the ER. He's like, you're going to be admitted. So just go ahead and take this back. <laughs> Give this to the ER doctor. Because what's interesting is I did mention to the ER doctor before I was discharged, I said, I do 
have a history of hereditary angioedema, but she looked like I had about five heads. And yeah. She had no idea. It's like what not I was even. About. So, yeah, it just went way over her head. She just said, okay. So I just let it go. I'm like, okay. But then the next day was when I talked to my allergist and he gave me everything I needed. So I went back to ER. They admitted me and they did treat me with fresh frozen plasma. I was in the hospital, I think. I think 16 days in. Wow. And it was over two weeks, so it was a long time. And we tried the fresh frozen plasma, and it just wasn't working. I don't know what was happening. Yeah. And I wasn't eating, so I was on the clear liquid diet and right. all this <laughs> nightmare. And then um, I found that there is a hereditary angioedema center right in San Diego, okay. California, which is a two-hour drive from where I live. So, okay. Um, so I'm like, oh, I should make an appointment there so I can at least, like, see is this really what's going on. But again, yeah. in the back of my mind, I'm still like, this doesn't explain everything. This right. does explain these bizarre swelling episodes I'm having, but it doesn't explain anything else. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I ended up going to that appointment, and basically that specialist was like, I'm not sure, like, you might have hereditary angioedema type unknown, which is kind of like a rare one. But, you know, I'm I'm just looking at him like, well, with my family history, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it's atypical. So, yeah, so I'm like, okay. So anyway, um, I had also made an appointment in March for August because with Dr. Chia. John Chia is a specialist in the ME community okay. for doctors. But he had like a five month wait at that time. Yeah. So I made an appointment. I wasn't going to see him till August. However, ironically, on the same day as my appointment in San Diego, I got a call from his office. They had a cancellation for that afternoon. If we can make it, we did make it. That was nine months into my illness and on International Emmy Awareness Day. And that's the day that I got my diagnosis. Whoa. That was very ironic. That was a, that's a big day. Um, <laughs> yeah. And did you, before the diagnosis, had you started to learn about Emmy? Like if you were looking at that doctor, were you kind of going, I think this might be it. I'm learning more about it. Or well, was it kind of an accident? To be very honest, while I was doing research, my sisters were also doing research. I mean, we had to come up with all other different kind of diagnoses yeah. that we tried and ruled out. And then they're in a, it's just crazy how the universe works. So both of my sisters sent me links about Emmy separately and they didn't even know that they had sent it to me. Like yeah. it was crazy at yeah. the, almost at the same time. So when I clicked the links and I'm looking, I'm like, oh my God, this sounds like me. Yeah. So. So it was at that point that I made the appointment with Dr. Chia, but again, he gotcha. didn't have any availability for like five months out. So right. in the meantime, he has you do blood work yeah. before your appointment. And once your blood work is complete, then you are quote unquote eligible for an earlier appointment if there's a cancellation. Gotcha. So that's how I was able to get in. But it's just so ironic that my diagnosis would come on the day of yeah. International Emmy Awareness Day yeah. when I wasn't even supposed to see him for three more months. Yeah. So that was just like, wow, what a crazy. Yeah. How does that happen <laughs> that's sometimes? Crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. So um, um, God, go ahead. I was just going to say, and was he covered by insurance just because you were talking about referrals and stuff before? So what one thing that is was nice with my particular HM I think most are like this but I can't speak for certain yeah, because that's okay that would be that would be reckless so, yeah but 
with my HMO, because I had already seen an infectious disease specialist within my medical group, who I told you was terrible. (laughs) Not um, great. (laughs) No. Um, I was able to request a second opinion outside of my medical group. Gotcha. And so you could go basically pretty much anywhere, I guess, within reason. Anywhere, I guess, that my... Primary, my primary insurance was Anthem Blue Cross. So wherever a doctor took Anthem Blue Cross, I could request a second opinion and it wouldn't have to be approved through my medical group. It would just be Anthem saying, yes, you can get this second opinion at this doctor. So my initial consultation with him was was no charge. Was okay. I just had to pay a copay. Right. And which would be expected anyway. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. normal. No matter what. <laughs> Unfortunately. So, Right. <laughs> so I did do that. And then, you know, like I said, I got the diagnosis. And, okay. Yeah. Emmy day. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, crazy. And then um, I forgot to mention too, along the way, I even saw an ear, nose and throat specialist because that <clears throat> the hoarseness in my voice lasted for a long time. I can't remember how many months into the illness, but a long time. And what I learned as I, you know, I've been sick longer is that On days that I'm feeling worse, my voice tells the story. So people Mm. who talk to me all the time, if they call me and I'm having, like, you know, one of my worst days, um, they can tell right away. They're like, oh, you don't sound good. You must not be feeling good. So it's interesting how my voice was telling the story all along, but I just didn't know. But like I said, I... um, saw the ear, nose, and throat specialist, and he was thinking, like, that there was... Because I do have vocal cord paralysis on the right side that I've had for... We've known about it at least 10 years. So, but my cord is paralyzed in the middle. Okay. So it allows me to still have a normal-sounding, non-hoarse voice. Um, So it's, you know, because some doctors are like, oh, your voice is hoarse because you have the paralyzed cord. I'm like, no, actually, my voice has been normal (laughs) with the paralyzed cord. That's not the problem. Yeah, that predates this. Yeah, the ENT who knew me well, he um, was thinking that there was, I forgot what he said and what else was going on. There was something, but it wasn't explained. It still didn't explain the systemic problems that I was having. Um. I still continue to see specialists even after Dr. Shia just to make sure that there wasn't something else going on because oftentimes as you know people within me have other illnesses going on. Yeah, well course. there was other there was other stuff wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're like that's true so, too. Yeah, so I was found to have um, something called perineoplastic syndrome. And these, you know, abnormal labs again. So for any foolish doctors that want to say. It's all in your head. I'm making things up. I'm pretty sure that I can't magically make my blood abnormal. Yeah. So anyway, I have perineoplastic syndrome and basically autoimmune autonomic neuropathy. Okay. Um, so it's one of those illnesses that falls under the dysautonomia umbrella. Okay. So like people, a lot of people have like POTS. Yeah. I don't have POTS. I that have comes up. The, all the time on this yeah. podcast. <laughs> yeah, so I have a different thing. Autoimmune autonomic neuropathy with that perineoplastic syndrome thing. Okay. So um, I do, so with that, my autonomic nervous system obviously doesn't function properly. So I have issues with low blood pressure. I have issues with low blood volume. 
I have, um, I give myself IV hydration several times a week through my port that I have in my chest. Mm -hmm. Um, I have, you know, like if I stand up too fast, everything goes black. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Know that one. I've been fortunate enough to be always somewhere I could like hold the wall or something so I don't hit the floor. But still, I've learned to like be very cautious about letting my feet dangle before I stand just to try to avoid um, collapsing on the floor. I also have quite a bit of difficulty with showering. Um, I'm not able to shower every day. I and when I am able to shower, I have to use a shower chair. Yeah. Um, even being on the shower chair, my heart still races at about 150 beats per minute, mm-hmm. which for people who are not in the medical field, uh, adult heart rate is 60 to 100 beats per minute. Yeah, that is high. <laughs> so 150 at rest. That's yeah. at rest because I'm in the shower sitting down. I'm not even standing. So just yeah. imagine if I tried to stand up, I would be on the shower floor, collapsed, passed out. Yeah. Um, and you think that's partly heat? Like that's kind of part of it with showers, right? Well, that is part of it because of the autonomic dysfunction. Yeah. I don't tolerate, I have, you know, low tolerance to heat. However, I turned the shower where it's not that hot. Like when yeah. before, before I got sick, I used to love long showers, like yeah. literally thir- 30 minute showers, probably minimum. That was my thing. Yeah. A very hot water. I loved it. But since this, my showers have to be very short, obviously. Yeah. And then I also don't turn the water as hot as I used to because right. I just can't tolerate it. But yeah. even with that and taking these precautions, there have been a number of times where I've had to literally open my shower door, fall on the bathroom floor to avoid passing out because I yeah. feel it coming, like, oh, I'm about to paint. Yeah. So I just lay, lay myself on the floor to avoid passing out. Yeah. And I become very, very, very short of breath, but it's not asthmatic. This is not asthmatic symptomology. Right. No. Um, very short of breath. I need water. Like, it's a whole, like, my autonomic nervous system is like, help, help, help. We're yeah. freaking out. Oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. So no showers. No showers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All these things are happening at one time. So yeah. Those aren't fun. But no. uh, and even, even things as simple as, you know, before I was sick, I was a diehard baseball mom. My son's been playing baseball since he was five. He's 14 now. And before I was sick, I never missed a game. Like, even if I had to work, if he had 8 a.m. games, I worked night shift when I was a nurse. So if I, you know, nights are 7 p.m. to 7.30 a.m., I'd get off and head straight to the baseball field, still in my scrubs, no stop for shower, no stop for sleep, like, just get there so I would be there to support him. Um, But since I've been ill, I've missed more games then I can count. I mean, so many, but I was able to make it to a game. I guess this has probably been over a month ago now. And I was just sitting there, sitting in my wheelchair. I'm actually in, I use a wheelchair, um, sitting in my wheelchair. It was a sunny day, but it wasn't super hot. It was probably like in the Mm seventies. Um, I had my water, which I carry all the time, even though I don't absorb it well, which was part of why I get the hydration through my port, which is basically IV hydration to help um, since (laughs) what I drink orally isn't absorbed as well. Um, So, but I still had my water, which is a full liter of water. And I had a full liter of coconut water too, which provides, you know, electrolytes and is very hydrating. And even with that, just sitting, my heart rate was in the one thirties. And I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't screaming. I wasn't any. I'm just yeah. sitting there, like literally at rest. And I'm just like, oh, it's, it's so stupid. uncomfortable. 
it's uncomfortable. It's frustrating because I formerly had a very healthy body that I could do. You know, I did yeah. all this very, I was adventurous. I went skydiving and whitewater rafting. I mean, all these things. Right? Yeah. How is my body unable to just sit and watch my son play baseball? It's terrible. Like, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's been a crazy ride. So I have that. And then let's see, my missus, we still keep the hereditary angioedema diagnosis. So it's that's in the on mix. there as well. Yeah, that's yeah. there. And then um, then I was hospitalized about April in September of last year for about two weeks. But that had to do with my the autonomic neuropathy. Okay. They, they, they believe that was the culprit. Although it's really hard for doctors whenever I get admitted to determine which one of my yeah. illnesses. Because <laughs> the autoimmune autonomic neuropathy is a rare one along with the hereditary angioedema. So they try to figure out which one of the rare illnesses are the culprit. Yeah. Or like, are <laughs> so they, they just think, playing together badly? What's happening? Yeah. yeah. So, they think it was, so they think it was that. I was admitted then and then, you know, discharged, whatever. But then I was just recently admitted again for two weeks um i actually was admitted for acute respiratory failure really? and it was not um it was not asthmatic mm-hmm. although when i first came to the er a couple of days before i was actually admitted of course they treated me like asthma sent me home but then i came back like oh actually the next day after the discharge and was in a dire situation like dire i mean i have never been you know i've been sick for almost three years now but even throughout this and all the multiple hospitalizations and everything i've never felt afraid for my life like Mm. I did in the ER this last time like they almost put me on life support I mean I was in really bad shape yeah that sounds Um, really scary oh it was very it was horrifying and because you know being a nurse makes it worse because when you see what's happening around you you know that you're in bad shape like when everyone's wrong I mean it was organized chaos I will say everyone knew what they were supposed to do they were all doing it Mm -hmm. but there were like six or seven people working on me yeah and you know what that means yeah yeah and then when I hear them tell that I hear the doctor tell them to get the life support equipment I'm oh my god yeah so yeah (laughs) so I started crying yeah so I was afraid for my life I'm like oh my god if I go on life support I might not get off like all these things because I'm a nurse so ignorance is bliss when you don't know then you don't really know how bad it is but when you know yeah and you just see it's just yeah that was bad but um so during that hospitalization they concluded that I probably also have myasthenia gravis okay everything else and that that well they did know earlier early on in my admission that the cause for the respiratory failure was neuromuscular that mm-hmm. I knew it wasn't my asthma anyway I'm like no right. this this is different I've been I've been asthmatic for almost 30 years I've experienced shortness of breath and yeah. all the various things this is not that this no. is something completely different so yeah. which also made it um more scary because you know i'm familiar with asthma that yeah. asthma shorter breath doesn't frighten me because yeah. i've never done that i know what the devil you know myself. yeah yeah but this one was like what in the oh it was just oh yeah yeah so 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 for that for um myasthenia gravis 
Am I saying mm-hmm. that right? I think I've only mm-hmm. seen it written down before. Mm-hmm. That's a nerve thing where your nerves and your muscles aren't communicating properly. Is that right? Or Something sort of right? Like that. Yeah. Close. Yeah, it's neuromuscular. So yeah, it, yeah. You, know, you have weakness. But I already have weakness from the <laughs> other one. So it's a bunch so of who knows? But it's in there now. Oh, yeah. And then um, I also just want to try to keep up as we're going through these with what the treatment protocols are. Mm -hmm. So like because you were mentioning like your port and and uh, saline and hydration. And then it sounds like with the um, now I forget the word, the one that ends in DEMA. It's it's been a long day for me. Angioedema. Yes. It's hereditary Hereditary angioedema. Okay, so for that one, you it's basically like when something's happening, there's a treatment, but there's not much in between. Is that right? No, actually, you can't. There is preventative treatment, too, that you can do. Um, Mm -hmm. They have a couple of them now. Um, One is intramuscular. The other is um, through IV. So Mm -hmm. I have that. I do have that. And then the rescue med, though, is subcutaneous so that goes in like your fat tissue right so okay so there's kind of both of like when there's an attack right. happening then we'll right. use a rescue med and the rest right. of the time here's something that will hopefully keep it under control okay right and then following oh, and i forgot to add too, yeah there's a mast cell activation syndrome for me sure. and when i came in the er with acute respiratory failure i was also having laryngeal swelling so like throat swelling so they're not sure if that mm. swelling was caused by the hereditary angioedema or if it was mast cell activation syndrome, anaphylaxis type right, thing. Right, right. So, like Benadryl, like IV Benadryl might help on the one side. Oh, no, they gave Not me, for you? They gave me, they gave me epi. They yeah. They gave me epi. They gave like, me epinephrine. They also gave me the hereditary angioedema rescue man because I brought right. it with me to the yeah. ER. So there's like um, everything that gave, might help. Yeah. They gave me IV Benadryl, IV serum. I mean, they were pushing mm-hmm. everything and they even put... Um, <clears throat> IV fluids on what's called a pressure bag. So the pressure bag squeezes the fluid so that the fluids it's infuse like as fast as they possibly okay. can. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. When you that would be seeing all that stuff. Yeah. Oh my God. I was afraid for my life. I mean, yeah. the truth. Yeah. I was afraid that I wasn't going to make it. So, yeah. That was quite horrifying. Yeah. No, that sounds really scary. Um, yes. So many things. Okay. So many. So, and I just want to keep tracking. So then, so that's from that, the like breathing stuff with Emmy, what, what, the things that we've got that we haven't specifically looked at coverage for. So Emmy and then myasthenia gravis, do those both, I I kind of know the answers, but for you, what, what protocols or what treatment or what has been happening basically? So for the ME, as you know, there are no FDA-approved meds or anything, so everything is just basically like, oh, try this, try that, see if this helps, see if that helps. And for some patients, certain things help, other patients, they don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, I have found that nothing has really helped for the ME. Um, I've tried, like, even antivirals because, oh, I I failed to mention that my ME was triggered by a virus, so I became sick with a virus. enterovirus to be specific okay um, and you say so you found the, that out later the various, i found that out when i had the appointment with dr chia right makes so sense please excuse when i jump out no, of order because that is that's so how normal my, <laughs> that's how my chronically ill brain works yeah I forget something and then all of a sudden i'm like oh wait i forgot that part so, yeah no totally anyway, normal I failed to mention that enterovirus was found to be the responsible party and what i explain to people all the time is that there are people who get exposed to enterovirus all the time. 
You just have to have the perfect storm for it to develop into Emmy, right. which is what I had, the perfect storm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, <clears throat> no, I forgot what else. Oh, so anyway, I've tried antivirals. Yeah, protocols. Yeah, I've tried all kind of supplements. I've tried all kind of alternative acupuncture, Chinese medicine. Um, I went to um, a place in San Diego, California, that's like, it's called Optimum Health Institute. And they have people that have said they've been cured of cancer from there, et cetera, et cetera. So they do, it's, an, it's a holistic approach. So I mm-hmm. went there for a week. I mean, I've done, I can't even think of all the things that I've done. I'm sure I'm leaving out a ton of them, but right. I mean, pretty much, yeah. I mean, I've done, tried ozone therapy, uh, IV, I tried glutathione IVs, I've tried low-dose naltrexone, I've tried, hmm, I can't remember everything else, but yeah. I've tried all those but like, things. like, the and, usual suspects, basically, is yeah, what that list to is. No, yeah, and to, to no avail. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, I also, and then so for the autoimmune autonomic neuropathy, right. you could either do plasmapheresis or IVIG. Okay. So initially, my neurologist uh, wanted me, oh, I forgot a hospital admission actually, but I'll explain it now. Okay. So it just dawned on me like, oh, I left one out. So, um, so we, uh, my neurologist and I elected or, you know, decided it was a joint decision that I would try IVIG. Okay. That I, I would do it at home. At that point, I didn't have a port, though. My veins were still, I mean, they were a little questionable, but they were still there enough where home health nurses could access me with, you know, a regular IV. Yeah, And give me the, the IVIG. So my first time getting the IVIG, I was okay. I had it. I think how many days was it three days of IVIG I think three days so everything was fine then three months later I had the IVIG again had a horrible reaction when I say horrible I mean hospitalized for a week horrible like, it was bad so bye-bye IVIG yeah not so for then you we were, so then we were like okay well then we just kind of did nothing for several months and then I ended up in the hospital again, like I said, in September. Um, so at that point, we decided to try plasmapheresis. <clears throat> and so um, during that hospitalization, I was basically found to have no more veins. Like even with, even with ultrasound guidance, which with an ultrasound machine, you can see the veins that are very deep down into the tissue that are not visible to mm. the naked eye when you just right, put on just a looking. tourniquet. Like, yeah, yeah, the machine sees way down in there. So even with that, they couldn't find anything. Yeah, so your veins, veins are hiding. No, they were done. <laughs> they're gone. Nothing left. So they were like, oh, there's some kind of connective tissue disorder because she has no veins. They, they looked in both of my arms all the way up to basically almost to my shoulder. Like, they okay. were looking under, I mean, crazy yeah. everywhere, and there was nothing. Yeah. So they're like, oh, she has to get a line. So they place the central line in my neck on the right side okay something called uh it's called a maherker no one's gonna probably know what that is but <laughs> anyway it's a line in my neck with three lumens that hung off of it okay. two of the lumens which are basically like two catheters i'll say it like that hopefully that makes sense two yeah. tubes i don't know how to explain it for That's, people to get, this like, is probably two, good enough yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay two tubes two 
Yeah, <laughs> that they things. Use, yeah, things that they use for the plasmapheresis, and then one which is called um, a pigtail that they use for my IV fluids, IV medications, etc. So I did get the plasmapheresis, five rounds of that, discharged, whatever. And then we were just kind of in limbo, I guess, trying to figure out what we're going to do next because in order to do plasmapheresis, oh, also during that hospitalization because I was found to have no veins and, you know, I'm chronically ill and out of the hospital, blah, 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 the decision was made to play support. Right. Also knowing that we would be doing the IV hydration several times a week and just, I mean, it's unsafe when you're as sick as I am to have no IV access. That could be, you know. Right, in an emergency or something. <laughs> bad, yeah. Yeah. It could be horrible. So the port was, is there. Yeah. Now the thing is, you can't do plasmapheresis through the port that I have. The, oh. the one port on the market that is available for plasmapheresis, it needs to be, they need to do better. Like someone needs to come up with something better, but it, it only works for plasmapheresis. Oh. You can't use it for blood draws. You can't use it for IV medication. So it's like one or the other. You can't use it for IV hydration. Yeah, and then on top of that, that's only for them to pull. So with plasmapheresis, it's basically like a plasma exchange. They pull your blood out, mm -hmm. filter out antibodies through this machine, and then they usually put albumin back in to replace the plasma that they right. took out. So this port will only allow the machine to pull, but then you need somewhere for the return. So you would have to have another port, which would be a regular port, or you would need to be able to have veins where they could put a regular IV right. to put the return back. Well, gotcha. That's a bunch of problems. That's a huge a bunch of problems. No yeah. one wants to have two ports, trust me. One on each side of your chest, no thank you. One right. on my chest is enough. Not to mention the plasmapheresis port is apparently double or more the size of my current port. Oh, wow. Now, yeah, I'm petite with small chest area. So I don't even, they don't even know. We didn't even try, you know, try yeah. to see because that was not an option for me. Once they told me all that, I'm like, oh no, I don't even want to see it. I don't even want to yeah. try it. You're like, like, no thanks. They were, yeah, they were contemplating exchanging out my current port for that. But I'm like, will it even fit? Like, no. And then when I found out it doesn't even work because I use my port for blood draw, everything. I do yeah. everything with my port, which is great because um, I do have frequent blood draws, et cetera. So it's yeah. been a saving grace. So Anyway, that was like out. We're like, no, well, that's not going to work. So, um, and then the other thing is they can put lines in your neck and stuff, but those are temporary. And potentially every time you use one of those big vessels, it's potentially what they call vein scarring. So if it's scarred, then you can't, can't do it again. use it again. Right. And then, you know, for a person, for me, that's not. 70 or 80 you don't necessarily want to be scarring your big muscle vessels right. at a young age you know? yeah because so, you never know um, other reasons you might need them kind of like yeah, you said about yeah. not having iv access right and yeah i'm chronically ill so i mean hopefully some kind of miracle happens and i just get well but if yes. i don't you know i have many more years to hopefully live and then you know i need yeah. these big vessels so right anyway um but then this hospitalization because i was in such dire strait and it was like an emergency they put they did put a line on my left neck um that same maherker with three mm -hmm. you know three catheters yeah. again and i did get plasmapheresis again which did seem to help me 
um, get a little better. So that was a relief because yeah. it was very scary there for <laughs> for a while. Yeah. In fact, like, I don't even remember the first week of my admission that much. Yeah, like, it was I know just... I had a lot of visitors and stuff, but I was so sick. It was like a blur. I was, yeah, yeah it was bad. So, um, so anyway, so now the plan is to actually try IVIG again. Okay. <laughs> However, what they have found is that in patients who have a bad reaction to one manufacturer, they oftentimes will do okay with another manufacturer. Hmm. And so, yes, is it because like the, okay, what's the word that I'm even looking for? I definitely don't have the technical words. So I'm trying to like, you know, convert my sort of understanding to what I mean. But basically they have like, are they kind of proprietary cocktails almost? Like they have slightly different makeups or whatever. Yes, because um, IVIG is actually made from other humans. Right. So each manufacturer does it a little different, apparently. Yeah. So um, just their process or whatever. Yeah. Their secret sauce. (laughs) Right. So, um, but this time I will have the infusion instead of at home. It'll be at the infusion center at the hospital. Mm -hmm. That way, if there any complication arises, I'm right there. Yeah. You know, get (laughs) intervention quickly. Yeah. So we'll see. I haven't done it yet. Right. So, so we'll that's see. your next step. It's coming yeah, in a couple of weeks. So yeah. We'll see. Mm-hmm. yeah and at least crossed. that way we can use my port. I don't have to worry about, you right. know, there's no issue with having to get a special port and all that. So yeah. we're really, you know, my neurologist and I were really hopeful that this Yeah, that this one's easier. Although, you know, I'm a little anxious about it because I'm like, eh, please. Yeah, of course. But I do feel a little better that I'll be at the infusion center at the hospital so intervention can happen quickly if yeah. something goes awry. Yeah. Yeah. And IVIG is like, no matter what, it's not super comfortable, right? Like people typically, or like many people will have kind of an IVIG like hangover almost for a couple yeah, of days, well, I think, I've which I understand like is different. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people are like wiped out after sometimes. Yeah. Um, which, okay, I can handle that. Yeah, that's I'm not the same as what happened. Yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> no, so yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. And they'll probably pre-medicate me, which they pre-medicated me before, too, with Benadryl and uh, Tylenol, but that still didn't. Mm-hmm. So this yeah. time, I'm not sure, but um, it's highly likely that they will pre-medicate me with the Benadryl, the Tylenol, and they might actually add steroids on there as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To just like support your body, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then also for the myasthenia, they discharged with me with two new medications, both of which have caused quite a bit of digestive upset. Oh. So, one of them we had to like back off, and now I'm on like a baby dose, and we're gonna try to increase the dose like every two weeks. Mm-hmm. to see if I tolerate it. If I don't, then they'll have to try something different. But with this particular medication, um, it takes 6 to 12 months to see the effects. Uh. It's kind of like, yeah. So it's one of those that you have to just, like, keep taking if your body tolerates it without, right. you know, horrible side effects. Right. Um, you got to keep taking it. And, you know, it's like a, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> um, you just can't tell. The, the like, yeah. you're hoping for an upside, but you're not going to see it for quite a while. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. Then the other med... I was okay in the hospital. They had me on the short-acting um, 
version or formula. And then, excuse me, for my discharge home, they put me on the long acting. Well, the long acting, my body was like, no, thank you. So yeah. now we're back to the short acting and have to try to see like try to find the optimal dose between half I think between half a tab up to two tabs per dose to see like you know yeah where I can feel some benefits but not the horrible side effects so yeah, yeah that's me that's a hard math <laughs> yeah 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 and so that's like brings us up to now basically yeah that's pretty I think we're pretty current now at this point <laughs> yeah um is there anything about kind of any of the things about chronic illness? So like what your day-to-day life is like or what it's been like to work with doctors or what it's like as a nurse going through this um, that hasn't come up yet that you think about a lot? Do you know what I mean? Um, I will say that being a nurse, although I'm disabled and I'm not working anymore, I'm still a nurse. <laughs> I will always be a nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel has helped me tremendously through this fight, like in terms of being able to advocate for myself in ways that, you know, I've really empathized even more with my fellow chronic illness sisters and brothers, because I'm like, if I wasn't a nurse, I wouldn't know to ask for this or to tell them to do it. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, my heart breaks for people who don't have the medical background, so they don't know necessarily the right things to say or do. And even like in terms of helping to find my diagnosis, I was doing tons of research and I was asking for specific doctors for referrals, specific specialties, so I could like get through ruling out, you know, everything possible. So definitely my career has helped me tremendously. I'm able to manage my own port. I don't, you know, need yeah. help with that. Yeah, that would be huge. Great. I'm com- yeah, I'm completely independent with that, um, including accessing it, deaccessing it, and everything else, blood draws, all that stuff I handle on my own, which is great. Um, so, yeah, I will say that. I mean, day-to-day, of course, is unpredictable, mm-hmm. which has been one of the many <laughs> challenges of chronic illness. Yeah. Because, you know, people don't understand, you know, people are like, oh, well, just, just rest. If you just rest the whole week, then you'll be okay by Saturday to do so and so. And I'm like, I'm sorry. You try to tell that to these illnesses. They don't care if I rest for seven days in advance. On the yeah. day of, they can still be like, aha, just kidding. You're not doing what you yeah. thought you were going to do. You know, so it's just, it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't work that way. It's not like, oh, if I sleep tonight then tomorrow I'll be good to go no my battery still can be on five percent regardless of if I slept eight or ten hours the night prior and often you know sleeping is a challenge or you do sleep the hours but then the quality of sleep is poor I mean I have an Apple watch so my Apple watch is consistently telling me how my heart rate at at sleep is not optimal yeah it's like like, oh it looks like you're exercising you're like (laughs) no I'm sitting in the shower I guess you wouldn't have your Apple watch there but it's like that I do I I wear my Apple watch in the shower it's waterproof so that's how I know and, and try to keep track because I know if my heart is racing, especially like in the 150s, for more than, you know, a short period of time, I'm going to end up on the floor. So I look and I'm like, oh, shit, let me hurry up and trust me. Let me hurry up and, you know, do my business and get out of here. And like before I was sick, I took one to two showers a day, definitely no less than one, mostly two. Yeah. Um, And now like to be unable to shower, I mean, I'm 
to be very honest, I'm lucky if I can shower once a week. Like yeah, actually oh, totally. in the shower. I mean, I do keep baby wipes at my bedside. Um, sometimes I can just do like a washcloth, you know, yeah. like. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's not in the shower. That's like, you know, yeah. sitting sitting on my shower chair, but at the sink quickly. Totally. Like, you know, yeah. just, the important, just the important parts, nothing else. Like, yeah. Well, it's like so, to feel a little bit human without yes, torturing exactly. yourself through the shower. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, feel that. Uh, I definitely, I think like when I was working full time and I did shower mm-hmm. every day, I don't think I could have imagined, like maybe on a Sunday, sometimes I wouldn't shower, but I never <laughs> would have been like, oh, there will be a time in your life where you shower once or twice a week and that becomes normal for you. Like, you could have never told me in a million years that there would ever be a time in my life that I would miss even one day of shower. Yeah. I mean, never. Like, yeah. Unheard of. I mean, like, what? Yeah. I mean, it, and for a long time, it was very difficult for me to deal with and accept and not be upset with myself. You know, yeah. now I'm, I've reached acceptance and I'm like, you know what? I do the best that I can. When I can do it, I do yeah. it. And when I can, I just can. I do have baby wipes and, you know, yeah. washcloths to at least get the important parts. But yeah. it is what it is. This is this is the real life of chronic illness. Like, yeah. This is what it's like, you know. People think like, oh, you're just chilling at home. Like, oh, that's great. I mean, I've had people say, ooh, I wish I could just be in my bed all day. Well, I don't. I fucking yeah. hate it. Excuse me. No, no, I don't worry. It. You're fine. <laughs> I absolutely hated. Before I was sick, I was never at home. I was only at home basically to sleep. Outside of that, both of my kids were active. I have a, a daughter that actually just graduated from Penn State last month. So, but when she was younger, she was a competitive cheerleader. So I was a cheer mom and a baseball mom. Yeah. I was active in their activities. You were doing it. School activities because I work nights, so my days were free. If they had award ceremonies, I was there. Everything like I was working out five days a week. I had a good social life I was traveling I was adventurous I was doing all these things and to go from that to basically trapped in my room the majority of the time is yeah. no it's, it's not, not a enjoyable. fun vacation no and you don't feel good so you're not even enjoying it and there's a lot of days where I can't even watch tv like yeah I don't feel well enough it's too much stimulation whatever the case so I'm just in here in the quiet yeah <laughs> like, yeah you know I mean yeah, it's no, it's not. Trust me, I would trade this to have my career back and be working overtime, okay? Yeah, like no <laughs> sleep at all. Yeah, like no, I, yeah, no, this is not, no. And being chronically ill is a full time job. People don't realize the number of phone calls, emails, research, this, that, that you have to do advocating for yourself. I mean, it's a nightmare. I'm, I'm fortunate now that. Um, I do have Medicare, so mm. I have less of the challenges that I had um, when I had an HMO, you know, yeah. because now if I see anyone outside of what was my medical group, I'm fine. I don't have right. to pay out of pocket or anything because there have been, I have spent tens of thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah. on appointments and this and all these things. I mean, people just really don't realize, like, chronically Ill, chronic illness has made a lot of people homeless. I've been blessed that that hasn't been my story, but it has caused a tremendous financial strain. I'm a single mother. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it has, it's, no, I would not wish this on my worst enemy. I don't even, yeah, no, this, no, this is horrible. No one wants this. 
yeah, it's not (laughs) whatever people think are imagining when they say that they wish that they could like lie around sometimes. It's not like that. No. Yeah. You want to lie around and feel like shit? I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah. It's quite boring. Like the the best way to describe it is to say that it's boring. And then for people who have excruciating pain, it's even worse. So you want to lie around in excruciating pain all day? I don't think so. No. No. (laughs) Where the sheets even hurt you? I mean, I've, you know, seen people's stories like the sheets hurt them. Like they can't even lay down comfortably. They're in excruciating pain at all times. No thanks. Who wants that? Yeah. It's like the sensory, all of the sensory stuff, the sensory overload stuff. It's like, it's a whole, it's a whole world that like I definitely did not know about before I got sick. And I think most people have no idea that it's even happening. No, even for me and I'm a nurse and I have to be very honest and say like, I I mean, I know. So I know that this, that what I experience is incomprehensible to anyone who has never experienced uncontrollable body failure, because that's yeah. what this is. It doesn't matter my willpower. You know, people are like, oh, just push through. Yeah. I'm going to push through and kill myself. Do you understand, like, yeah. my illness? And then that just made me remember about the post-exertional malaise. So right. earlier on when I was talking about the yoga and yeah. how I was so sick after every yoga class, well, I didn't know until I met with Dr. Chia and was diagnosed and found out that a classic symptom of ME is post-exertional malaise, which is also called post-exertional neuroimmune exhaustion, which oh. basically means that you have an, a worsening of your symptoms after a lot of people even minimal activity like cooking a meal for themselves yeah. or taking a shower or just walking in their house like yeah. you know minimal activity it's not just exercise but exercise is one of the ones that's pretty much guaranteed to get you close to death door <laughs> like you know exercise yeah. is a no that is an absolute no so I didn't know that and I'm glad right. that it was yoga and not something more strenuous but yeah. I will have to say that after those yoga classes I was sicker and never got better yeah like, so I got the yoga made me sicker and I never returned to my pre-yoga baseline even now right and right that's been over that was over two years ago that that yoga stint happened yeah yeah and that's so. exactly the kind of thing that like until it happens to you no one would ever think that going to a no. yoga class would be kind of permanently or long term yeah have negative effects yeah yeah well so far it's been over two years for me so i'm waiting for this yeah but it hasn't so yeah but yeah like people don't get it i'm like anyone who knows me knows that i love fitness i miss fitness so very much however i have experienced what even yoga can do to me i'm not willing to take that risk you know like someone told me oh i saw I saw a documentary about a guy and he was doing salsa to help him with your illness. I said, um, no, he could not have been doing a salsa with my illness. Yeah. I said, and I'm like, well, then I thought to myself, I'm like, well, maybe if he has very, very mild ME, but then I'm like, no, because the classic symptom that, that separates ME from the other chronic illnesses is the post-exertional malaise. So it's yeah. like, mm, you're doing salsa and salsa isn't just, nothing I mean salsa is a pretty good workout so I'm like no and so what I did was I sent him 
several articles about how exercise is detrimental for people with ME and could even kill us. I mean, depending on how much you're doing and how bad, you know, whatever. So anyway, I was like, uh, no. And plus Dr. Chia was very, very clear about you cannot exercise anymore. He's like, like, don't push yourself at all. Yeah. He's like, that's out. So I'm like, okay. And no, I'm not willing to make myself worse. I've already experienced it. And, Again, anyone who knows me knows I have the type of personality that's a push-through personality. I do understand that it's counterintuitive to hear that yeah. activity, that activity, even minor, minimal, can make me sicker, but that's the reality. Yeah. Period. <laughs> yeah. what it is. Totally. Yeah. And that's hard. That's hard for one, mm-hmm. for like, especially like you're saying, you're like, I loved exercise. Exercise is a right. big part of my life. And it's hard right. to lose that. And Absolutely. it's hard to convince people who really want to believe that actually, if you just found the right way to fight through it, you'd get better. Yep. And you're like, no, thanks. That's not true. <laughs> That's not what's happening. No, because here. people are like, oh, you know, even people with cancer, they say you like to stay active. And I'm like, yeah, that's for cancer. I yeah. Mean, you know, I'm not saying anything negative about people with cancer, but no. it's different than it's just different. chronic illness. We do have some similarities in our experiences. However, yes. For cancer, they do recommend stay as active mm-hmm. as possible Yeah, for as long as possible. But for my illness, it's the exact polar opposite. Right. Yeah. It's a bad mm-hmm. idea, period. Bad. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Who? Um, okay. I already asked if there's anything that we haven't covered yet. Uh, but if anything else has popped into your head, you are <laughs> welcome to say it. <laughs> Not that I can think of unless there's anything that you can think of specifically that you want me to touch on or. No, I think we've covered a whole lot and everyone's story is so different that I don't use, you know, a fixed set of questions because then it just mm-hmm. wouldn't apply half the time. Right, right. But I feel like we've covered so much stuff and I like because you have your because you have a medical background. It's like you're able <laughs> to really talk about that stuff, which is cool. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to share your story with me. I know that energy is not free and that. No, it's not. <laughs> this this will cost me, but it's worth it, though, because it's so important for people to hear. And well, this is here because it's a podcast yeah. to hear our stories. <laughs> and also, I do want to just mention that I am a woman of color, which I know we are not often represented in the chronic illness community, but we are here. Yeah, <laughs> we are sick as well. And we need to be believed, too, because, yeah. you know, there's there's a stigma that comes along with not just women being disbelieved, but also women of color. It adds another layer. So I just want to yeah. let you guys know that we're here. Yeah. <laughs> we're sick and <laughs> we want to be heard, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And thank you for saying that. Thank you for listening to episode 42 of No End in Sight. You can find Ashanti on Twitter and Instagram at AshantiRN, all one word. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at BennisB. And of course, you can find this show on Instagram at no.n.in.site.pod. I post each episode as a story, like all the time, but I haven't posted to the main feed in a while because I'm so behind on transcripts. Uh, Although I finished one last week, which I am celebrating. But of course, the whole reason that I've started a Patreon account is to help with transcripts. So I'll go ahead and plug that one more time. It's patreon.com slash noendinsight. 
I've got lots more stories in the pipeline, so make sure you subscribe in your podcast app to find out when new episodes are available. And if you've been enjoying this show, I would be so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts so that new listeners know what to expect from the show. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests there in the group. And then finally, last thing, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. And I've got a few fall patterns in the shop that I think are pretty fun, but uh, there's also a bunch of black and white icons that have become pretty popular lately. Like you can stitch yourself a little bathroom sign, for example, although it is definitely the traditional symbol sign with a traditional man and a traditional lady in a dress and or cape. But uh, we can find another one, maybe make a toilet. Anyway, I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.